God, our Father, we thank and praise you again for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection and that he speaks to us in your scriptures that we might know him and live. And we pray now that you'd help us to know him better and to find that life that he so promises. In Jesus' name, amen. When your alarm goes off in the morning, what is the first thing that you desire? What's the first thing that you hunger for when that alarm goes off? When that piercing sound rings through the room and you realize your precious little sleep is gone, what is the first thing that you say, I want that, I desire it? Here's a few suggestions. Here are some of the things that I think are at the top of this list. Things that you desire or seek as soon as your alarm goes off. The first one is this. You seek to destroy your alarm clock. (laughs) Who can relate with that? Oh, not that many. Just a few. I know I feel that way often. Number two, you yearn for more sleep. You go, I had a couple hours and I want more. I need more sleep. Number three, you're literally hungry for food. And some people wake up and they're like, bang, I'm hungry. Other people don't like to eat for hours after breakfast because they don't feel like it. Fourth one, who can guess what the fourth one might be? Starts with C, coffee. Thank you. Number four is coffee. People wake up and they're just like, ah, I need a coffee. That's the first thing that I want or desire. There's probably lots of other things. Maybe you're the kind of person, I don't relate with you if this is you, but you wake up and go, I'm ready to do the day. I'm excited about everything. That's not me. Maybe that's you. But today in our passage, we get to see what Jesus desires, what he hungers for, what he seeks. He says, my food is to do the Father's will and finish his work. And we'll think about what that means. But first, cast your mind back to last week for a moment. Because we stopped halfway through the story, do you remember? Remember, Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling from Judea up to Galilee. So going from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north around that lake. And in the heat of the day, they stop at a Samaritan town, Sychar. The disciples head into town to get food, while Jesus, exhausted, sits down near the well. And as he's resting there, a Samaritan woman comes out to draw water. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He talks to her. He talks to a Samaritan woman. Remember, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And men in public didn't talk with women. They didn't have private conversations. But Jesus does. He doesn't care. He just does it anyway. He reaches out to this outcast woman. He shows her her spiritual need and says, Come to me for living water. I'm the Messiah, the one speaking to you. I'm offering you eternal life. How does she respond to all this? Well, before she can, the disciples get back with lunch. And there's this really awkward moment. So let's get into our passage. We're starting at verse 27. Just then the disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. This shows again just how culturally inappropriate Jesus was being. The disciples were utterly shocked that they were talking. 
But our Lord wasn't afraid to break the status quo if it meant loving people. So the disciples arrive and there's this really awkward moment where none of them dares to ask him, why were you talking? What were you talking about? They feared him, didn't they? They didn't want to mess with him. But it seems they arrive just as Jesus and the woman are finishing up. And so now we get to see her response. So look at verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the men, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? There's a, real, there's a couple of really cool things going on here. Did you see them? First, did you notice she just leaves her water jar there? She came to draw water. That's the only reason she's there. But she found something better. She found the Messiah. She found the one who could give her living water. And she's so struck, so, ex- so excited that she just leaves the jar there by the well. It's a bit like when you're at the shops and you're like rushing around trying to get all the things you need and you quickly go through the register and then on the way home, on the way home you finally get home and you're like, where's that bag of shopping? Oh, I left it at the register. And you realize you were too busy, too distracted. The woman does the same thing. She's so excited, so distracted, she forgets about her water jar. But she's coming back. Because, and this is the second thing, did you notice what she does as soon as she gets to to town? She goes straight to the men, perhaps the elders of the town, and says, come and meet this amazing man. He knew all about my life. I think he could be the Messiah. Come. Do you remember what Andrew and Philip did way back in John chapter 1, a few weeks ago? They did the same thing as the Samaritan woman, didn't they? They did that remarkable thing, which actually isn't that remarkable because it's totally normal. When they met Jesus, someone amazing, they went and straight away told a friend. They brought their friends to Jesus so they could see him for themselves. They met Jesus, they saw something of his glory, his power, his wisdom. And they said, I need to tell someone about him. The Samaritan woman does the same. She meets Jesus, she goes back and says, come and meet him with me. When someone meets Jesus, they bring others to meet him too. Disciples make more disciples. And we need to feel the challenge of that. Are we struck by Jesus, so amazed by him, so thankful for his love that we share it openly with others. Can we not help but talk about him? Or has our zeal grown cold in this area? Let's follow the example of this lowly Samaritan woman who tells her town about Jesus straight away. Well, the men of the town, they hear what she says and they say, that's worth checking out. And so off they go to see Jesus at the well. And while we're waiting for them to arrive, we get a bit of an interlude. We get another awkward moment between Jesus and his disciples. So look at verse 31. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I really feel for the disciples sometimes. 
when they had gone to all the effort of going into town for lunch and they've brought it back and they're getting stuck into it, Jesus doesn't have any. In fact, he refuses to eat anything and they keep urging him, aren't you hungry? Aren't you tired? We went and got this food for you. But he wouldn't eat. And eventually he says, why? I've already got some food. Secret food, food that you don't know about. Be honest about this. Who has ever had a secret stash of food hidden in their house? You know, chocolate biscuits hidden in the sock drawer, lollies under your pillow or under your bed. This is taking it to the next level. Soft drinks in the toilet cistern. (laughs) Who's ever done that? I'm guessing no one's done that because they're grossed out by it. It's clean water in the cistern, right? We've all done it, haven't we? Maybe not that last one. But we've all done it, hidden food in the house. I remember doing it as a kid, and I got caught on multiple occasions. And I remember finding my parents' stash and helping myself. It was great. That's what the disciples think here. Does Jesus have a secret stash that we don't know about? Does he have like a magical coat that like pulls food out of it? Did someone do a sneaky Macca's run for him? Who knows? (laughs) They have no idea. But Jesus is not talking about a secret stash of food, is he? Look at verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Striking, isn't it? Jesus uses amazing images. But what does it mean? Well, to wrap our heads around this, I think we need to ask the question, what is food? What does food mean to us? Think about it for a moment. Food is what we hunger for. It's pretty simple. It's what we crave. It's what we desire, what we seek every day. Food governs our lives. We plan our lives around our meals and our shopping and our cooking. Food is what nourishes us. It's what we need to live. It gives us energy. It satisfies us. It gives us pleasure and joy as we enjoy its taste and we eat it together. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, what I hunger for more than physical food, what I crave and desire and seek, what nourishes me, what satisfies me, what gives me pleasure and joy is this that I do the will of my Father and finish his work. It's more important to me than food. We read Deuteronomy before, where God says that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He says, know my commands and do them, and you will have life. But Jesus What Jesus says here is similar, not exactly the same, but similar. He says his food is doing God's will. He lives for living out God's word. He hungers for the Father's will to do his work as God has spoken it to him. That's why I'm here, he says. I was sent by God the Father for this purpose, to do his will, to finish his work, and I yearn for it. But it's actually a big question that we haven't asked yet. What does Jesus mean when he says God's will, God's work? What is God's will? What is his work? Well, in a sense, you could say it's living God's way in all of life. It's believing in and living by everything written in the Scriptures for us. 
Now that might be true, but Jesus goes on to say what he means in more detail. He tells us what the Father's will is, what his work is. And this is really amazing, but it takes a bit of figuring out. So look at verse 35 with me, and we'll do a bit of groundwork. Jesus says, Don't you say there are still four more months, then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life. What's Jesus saying? Well, it seems he's quoting a modern proverb of the time. And the proverb, do you see what you see there? It says, There are still four more months, then comes the harvest. Jesus is quoting this common saying. What do you think it means? Well, it means, seems to mean, we've planted our seeds, but it's not yet harvest time. We've planted our seeds and we're waiting for them to grow, but they're not there yet. In the meantime, there's nothing to do. So we're just going to sit and wait. That's what it seems that, parab- that proverb means. There's nothing to be done right now, so let's just sit and do nothing. What does Jesus think about that? Look at verse 35. Again, listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for harvest. Jesus is saying, don't just sit there twiddling your thumbs, playing the waiting game. Look up. Raise your eyes. The harvest is ready now. There is work to be done now. And I wonder if as Jesus was saying this, in the distance you could see the Samaritans coming towards them. Picture it. Jesus says, lift your eyes, look down the road. There's the harvest. And it's ripe. And I have begun to reap fruit for eternal life. It's these Samaritans who are coming to me. It's so beautiful, isn't it? Imagine being there. Imagine hearing Jesus say these words. What you're seeing now in front of you, disciples, this is the ripe harvest. It's beginning to be reaped. People are coming to me, listening to me, believing in me, receiving eternal life through me. Now is the time to reap the harvest. It's ready now. The work has begun. This makes sense of what Jesus was saying before, doesn't it? What is the Father's will? What is his work that Jesus longs to do? Jesus says, look at the fields. Look at these people. This is what I live for. This is what I hunger for, what I strive for. This is what brings me joy and satisfaction. The harvest. People coming to me, believing in me, receiving eternal life in me. Jesus hungers for God's will and work to reap the harvest of people believing in him. And it's if he's saying to the disciples and trying to get into their heads, it's time to get up and work. It's time to reap the harvest together now. Join in the work. Rejoice with me. Because these people are finding salvation and eternal life. Now. You may or may not know, you may or may not be aware that there are Christians out there, even Christian pastors, who say that it's not the job of every Christian to share the gospel. 
Just leave the spread of the gospel to God. Just leave it in the hands of the gifted evangelists, like Billy Graham, for example. Just leave it in the hands of the pastor of your church. You don't need to talk to your friends about Jesus. You don't need to talk to your family. Just live a good life. That's enough. My question to these Christians is this. What do you do with a harvest? When the crops are grown and ready, what do you do? Do you leave it in the sun to overripen? Do you leave it to be scorched, to be eaten by insects, to rot away? What do you do with a harvest? You don't do that, do you? No, you reap the harvest. It's called a harvest because it needs to be harvested. Jesus is saying, there is a ripe harvest of people who will believe in me, and it's there to be reaped if only people will share the gospel so that they might hear and believe and be saved. And if the harvest was ripe when Jesus was walking the earth, then how is it any different now? When there are seven billion people in the world, and so few of them, know anything about Jesus or they have shallow religion preached to them or they have cultural religion as their heritage but no real relationship with the Lord Jesus what else would I say to those Christians you say you don't need to share the gospel with people I'd say if Jesus hungered to do the Father's will and work that is, reap the harvest, shouldn't we hunger for the same things that he hungered for? Shouldn't we desire the same things he did? Shouldn't at least one of our thoughts in the morning be, today I get to be part of God's harvest and I hunger for it like the Lord Jesus did, like he does. And if Jesus says, I rejoice in reaping the harvest, shouldn't we want to rejoice with him, be part of that work, share in that joy? Friends, God calls every member of his kingdom to be an ambassador for Christ, to declare his praises, to proclaim Jesus, and it's a joy, a difficult joy, a joy that requires patience, but a joy nonetheless. This is what Jesus hungers for, what he desires, and so should we. And so we need to ask ourselves the question that these words, Jesus' words, force us to ask. What do we see when we look out at the world? Phil challenged us with that question last week. Do we see people we envy or do we see sadness because the world doesn't know Jesus? Well, similarly this week, what do we see when we look at the world? Do we see the good of humanity or the different cultures and their beauty? Or do we see a harvest that needs to be reaped Jesus tells his disciples, look, raise your eyes. Look at the fields. Don't say the harvest will come later. Don't say there's nothing to do now. Don't twiddle your thumbs. The harvest is now. The gospel has gone out to all nations and it started with these Samaritans. It's reached us here today and it's not over. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And the simple reason for that 
is that the harvest hasn't been fully reaped yet. But what about these Samaritans? They're on the road to Jesus. How do these Samaritans respond when they arrive? Let's look at the last part of the story. Cast your eyes over verses 39 and 40. What do we see there? We see the Samaritans come to Jesus and believe. Look at verse 39. At first they believe because of the woman's testimony. So verse 40, they come out and they meet Jesus and invite him to stay with them. And over the next two days, they did life together. They ate and drank together. They saw Jesus for themselves. They heard what he said about life, about himself, about God the Father. And then verse 41, what was the result? Many more believed because of what he said, because of his word. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the saviour of the world. It's beautiful, isn't it? The Samaritans, the people who had some Israelite heritage, but had intermarried with the other nations. These people who had gone astray and tried to worship God on Mount Gerizim wrongly. These people who worship what they do not know, Jesus says. Now what are they doing? Now they are worshipping in spirit and in truth. They come to Jesus, they hear his word for themselves and they believe. They have eternal life according to Jesus. And this is what Jesus hungers for. He hungers for God's will and work to reap the harvest of people believing in him. And so Jesus is exactly what the Samaritans call him. Did you notice? They say, you are the saviour of the world. He's not just for the Jews, he's for the Samaritans as well. He reaches out to this outcast woman. He spends two days with the Samaritan town even though that's against the rules. All the while, the Jews just follow him for his signs. And Jesus keeps rebuking them for their unbelief. It's the Samaritans here, the odd ones out that he reveals himself to and who believe in him. It shows us that he is for all people, the rich and the poor, the wealthy and the outcast. He's the saviour of all nations. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this means that the harvest is the whole world. There are people who will believe in Jesus in every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And we are called to reap that harvest with Jesus. To do the Father's will, to finish his work. And how do we do that? We've seen it in the passage, haven't we? We've seen it in John's Gospel already. It starts with simply telling someone about Jesus, inviting them to meet them for, him, for themselves, to see Jesus for themselves, to hear his word. And it ends, we desperately pray, in people believing and finding eternal life. Jesus hungers for this. And you can imagine his joy as he saw these Samaritans, as he taught them, as they responded with faith. 
So as we think about how we should respond to what John writes here, to what Jesus says, I think it's pretty simple. Jesus hungers for the will and work of his Father to reap the harvest of people believing in him. Let's also hunger like that, like our Lord. Let's hear the challenge of this passage and let's get on with the job. Let's get stuck into doing God's will and finishing his work, proclaiming Jesus, reaping the harvest of people believing for eternal life, testifying about Jesus, inviting people, come and see him for yourself here, praying with patience that God would have mercy and give the gift of faith to those people we talk to. And let's not give up until the day Jesus returns and the harvest is done. But to finish, I just want to ask one more question. It's the question we've asked before, but it's the most important question. If you get sick of us asking this question, I'm sorry, too bad, because we will keep asking it. We will keep asking it because it keeps coming up in John's Gospel time and time again. It's why he wrote. The simple question is this. Have you done what the Samaritans did that day? Have you heard about Jesus? Have you met him for yourself? Have you seen his life and words, his death and resurrection in the Bible? And have you made that step of believing in him? Believing that his word is true, turning from sin, from your own way of life, and placing your trust in him so that you can have the forgiveness that we talked about yesterday and eternal life. If you haven't, then what is standing in your way? Get it out of the way. Because Jesus hungers for you to be part of his harvest. To be fruit that he reaps for eternal life. And that is our desire and prayer for you too. Please don't be that person who sits in church and lets the most incredible news ever told wash over you. Don't be that person, I plead with you, who has one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Jesus is the saviour of the world, but he is also the judge. And he will judge each of us, you and me, based on our response to him. But he offers you life. So choose life, eternal life, life to the full. Choose to believe in the Lord Jesus to drink deeply of the living waters that he offers so that you, with us, can enjoy eternal life with him. Jesus hungers for God's will and work to reap the harvest of people believing in him. He hungers for you and me and for all people to believe and have eternal life. Let's pray to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you again for the Lord Jesus. That because of him, we have been harvested as your harvest. We have been reaped and that we have eternal life. We are members of your kingdom. Because of everything that Jesus said and did for us. We give you thanks and praise and we ask that you would help us to believe in that good news always, 
and that you would help us also to hunger and desire for the harvest, like your son does, like you have called us to as well. May we proclaim Jesus to our dying world, and may you open the eyes of the blind. May you bring Samaritans and all nations into your kingdom so that they might know you and glorify you together with us. In Jesus' name, amen.